Last few weeks, we've been going after our heart, asking questions like this. What's the difference between first things and second things? Does suffering and trials shake away some of the second things in life so we can begin to focus and love and worship God for God alone? Today, I want to ask, maybe make a transition from the heart into the head. The problem of evil and suffering has often been called the Achilles heel of the Christian faith. Many folks, both young and old, will eventually walk away from faith when they look at our world and see the suffering and the evil, and they can't reconcile the presence of evil in our world with a good God and a God who is all-powerful. And so today, I want to title our message, Rational Responses to Theodicy and Evil, Looking Beyond Bildad and Zophar. The problem of evil in our world came to a climax after the post-World War II era. 19th century had seen this optimism that maybe humankind was just going to go from mountaintop to mountain tech, technology, wonderful things were happening. Maybe it's just up and to the right for humanity. Then two world wars, the Great Depression, and countless genocides raged through our world. And it was the famous Jewish Holocaust writer Elie Wiesel who penned his most famous book called Night about the horrors of Auschwitz and raised for us visceral questions about the nature of faith in the midst of evil. Some of you might have read this in high school. Let me take just one passage from night. Here's Elie Wiesel in his own words about the experience of horrendous evil. The three victims mounted together onto chairs. Three necks were placed at the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults. But the child was silent. Where was God? Where is he? Some be, someone behind me asked. The sign from the head of the camp, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence throughout the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Bear your heads, yelled the head of the camp. His voice was raucous. We were weeping. Cover your heads. Then the march past began. The two adults were no longer alive. Their tongues hung swollen, blue-tinged, but the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. For more than half an hour, he stayed there struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, where is he? Here he is. He is hanging on these gallows. That night, the soup tasted of corpses. Willie Wazell was one of many who, in the post-World War II era, made a rather bold de declaration that God is dead. They could never reconcile the goodness and the power of God with the presence of horrendous evil in our world, places like Auschwitz and the gas chambers. 
gave renewed attention to what philosophers and theologians have referred to throughout the centuries as theodicy. Now, theodicy comes from the two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and dike, meaning justice. Theodicy is a branch of theology that attempts to reconcile belief in God given the stark reality and existence of evil. And so what do we do in the face of horrendous evil? Though many of us might simply turn a blind eye or turn a deaf ear to the reality of evil in our world, isn't it becoming increasingly difficult to do so given our world gone mad? Coronavirus has killed one out of every 670 Americans. 500,000 total deaths is the official number. But it's not just the coronavirus, is it? The 2004 Asian tsunami killed more than 280,000 people, more than a quarter of a million people on a single event. Malaria causes more than 2 million fatalities annually. The majority of these deaths, and we experienced this and saw this firsthand in Central Africa, come from African children whose only crime is to be born in Africa. Closer to home, 2,973 Americans lost their lives on 9-11, a horrible number indeed. But in reality, only a fraction of the suffering and evil and loss that affects other parts of the globe on a regular basis. In 1994, the Rwandan genocide amounted to more than two entire World Trade Center disasters every day for a hundred consecutive days. And so it is, the reality of horrendous evil in our world is what drives atheists in every generation after generation to scold Christians. The atheist Sam Harris wrote this to church-going Christians not long ago. He said, we stand dumbstruck by you, by your denial of tangible reality and by your attachment to an imaginary God. This is what the presence of evil and suffering in our world Mobilize people to cast off God as impossible belief in the face of horrendous evil. As John Piper has said, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians, and wimpy Christians won't survive the days ahead. And so today I want to take a more rational approach to the problem of suffering and evil because suffering and evil not only come into our lives, they affect our heart. They affect our families, our communities, and our world. But evil and suffering also affects our head. How do we respond to the problem of suffering and evil when we see it in our world and when skeptics come to our doorstep to debate us and put it in our face? And so first, I want to turn to the rather inadequate theodicies of Job's two friends, Bildad and Zophar. Job chapter 8. What are we to make of what might be called um, Bildad's theodicy in chapter 8. The big idea of Bildad is this. Job, God never perverts justice. God never does wrong. Retributive theology, which we saw a few weeks ago, that cause and effect, have, have this cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. Don't you know, Job, that that cause and effect relationship is judiciously governed and wisely overseen by God? key verse in chapter 8 is verse 3, where Bildad asked Job this, does God pervert justice? 
Or does the Almighty pervert the right? For Bildad, he leans heavily on traditional wisdom. He says things like this to Job. Job, understand that our forefathers had wisdom. We just arrived on the scene just, just like yesterday. Look at verse 8. For inquire, please, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. The outcome of Bildad's theodicy says this, that the wicked and the godless always perish according to God's immovable decrees. He says, such are the paths of all who forget God. He, he compares Job's life to a plant withering on the vine. In verses 11 through 22, if you look at there in Job 8, is nothing more than a poetic expansion of this idea that Bildad ends by saying this, the tent of the wicked will be no more. God never perverts justice. How do you think that fell into the lap and into the life of Job? Suffering and despair, crying. The problem for Bildad is not only a total lack of compassion, especially verse 4. He says, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them over into the hand of their transgression. In other words, Job, your children are getting what they deserved. How callous. The second problem is that Bildad does not account for Job's innocent suffering. Bildad's generalizations does not account for Job's particular case, especially as both God himself and the author of Job say that Job was what? Blameless. He is not suffering for any hidden sin in his life. Going to Job chapter 11, is Zophar, his other third good friend, is he going to say anything quite different and substantial? The big idea for Zophar's theodicy is that the wisdom of God is unsearchable. Job, who are you to question God? Don't you know, Job, that there's a human limit to our knowledge of God? And the key verse is verse 7 and 8, when Zophar says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you do? No, the irony, of course, is that God will say much the same thing as Zophar at the end of the book of Job. But in the midst of Job's suffering, is Zophar right to make much of God to make only to make less of man? Is this is what we are to do when you are faced with someone going through painful trials? Just to defend God, not to show any compassion. And so the outcome of his theodicy, instead of Job's appropriate response that persists in wanting to see God, Zophar gives the counsel, Job, just put sin and injustice away from your life, out of your tent, so that your great life can be restored. He says, your life will be brighter than the noonday, Job. A couple problems with Zophar's theodicy. First, his theodicy is completely tone deaf. So far comes across as what? As arrogant and as scolding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. What a horrible thing to say. And does God need to be defended when Job's life is ebbing away, when his despair is at an all-time low? As Francis Anderson, great commentator on the book of Job, says... 
Job is not arguing a point. He is trying to understand his experiences. Hence, he appeals to God again and again. His prayers may shock his religious friends, but at least he keeps on talking to the heedless God. His friends talk about God. Job talks to God. And this makes him the only authentic theologian of the book. Zophar is not only tone deaf. The second problem with Zophar's theodicy is that his theodicy dismisses the role of lament in the life of faith. If you've ever walked through a period of darkness and pain and trial with a friend or with a spouse or with a child, you know that you have to make space for their lament and their sorrow alongside of their faith. And Zophar never makes room for lament alongside the faith of his friend Job. Through it all, Job never stops praying. He complains, but he complains to God. He doubts, but he doubts to God. He screams and yells, but he screams and yells in God's presence. So says Tim Keller. And at the end, don't you think that, and don't you see that how God also made space for Job's lament? He approves of Job's words. He says this in Job 42 to Eliphaz. He says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, Eliphaz, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So God himself makes room for lament in the midst of faith, especially when we're facing innocent suffering or even suffering that is deserved and evil that comes into our lives. And so the question is, can we do any better? Can we do any better than the theodicies of Bildad and Zophar? What about for folks who come to you and are sort of skeptical about the faith and they will put this question of evil right into your lap and right into your head? What will you say? And if we're honest, don't we Christians, we also have doubts. If God is so good, then why is all this happening in my life? So I want to give you six different theodicies to put in your tool belt as you think and deal with the problem of evil in our world. Here's the theodicy question. God is good, God is powerful, yet evil exists. That's the basic conundrum. How do we reply? First, to this Achilles heel of Christianity. First is a soul-making Theodicy, a soul-making theodicy. The idea that God forms the soul to be like Christ, yes, even in the midst of our suffering. I camped out here last week. I'm not going to belabor the point again. But the questions are these. Is the highest good for my life that my life be pain-free and remarkably free from pain and, and that I should be live a life of comfort or that I become the kind of person who loves God for God alone? Is my expectation of God is that God, you exist to maximize my blessings and minimize my troubles. God, get to your job. You exist for me. Maximize blessings, minimize troubles. That's why you exist in my life. Or is God free? 
to mold me into the kind of person who is spiritually mature, who loves God for God's own sake and molds me into be a morally good person after Jesus Christ. Soul-making theodicy. Second theodicy is called the greater good theodicy. The greater good theodicy. And the, the idea here is that God is sufficiently wise and powerful enough to bring good even, yes, out of evil. Some have noticed that without the presence of evil in our world, certain virtues could not exist and would not exist. Think of compassion, patience, courage, doing justice, redemptive love whereby one dies for his friends. Imagine a world without those virtues. God has made a world where greater good comes forth even out of evil. And philosophers have called these things second-order goods or second-order virtues that are wholly dependent on first-order evils. In fact, Scripture itself gives reasonable clues and several positive uses of evil even in the Scripture. In the Scripture, God uses evil to test the faith of His servants because faith is more precious than gold. God uses evil to discipline his beloved children. God uses evil to preserve many lives, even the descendants of his people, uh, Abraham, that came through faith. God uses evil to teach believers patience and perseverance so that our faith lacks nothing. God uses evil to redirect our attention to things of ultimate importance. God uses evil to enable believers to comfort others with the comfort of we receive from God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God uses evil to encourage them, believers, to bear powerful witness to the truth. Where do you think the gospel is going forth in our world, that people just do evangelism as in second nature? Is it in the suburbs of America, or is it in the favelas of Sao Paulo? Is it in places like Africa, where they're seen suffering and evil on an everyday basis, and they start to proclaim the truth? as second nature, who they are. God uses evil to give greater joy to believers when suffering is replaced by glory. He uses evil to judge the wicked, both in history and the life to come, to bring reward to persecuted believers who endure to the end. God uses evil to display the glorious works of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You see, sometimes people say, if I can see no good reason for suffering and evil, then God must not have any good reason for suffering and evil either. And so to the skeptic who says to you, so you believe in an all-powerful God, then why doesn't he prevent evil? You might respond to the skeptic like this, a God who is more powerful than you to prevent evil don't you think he would also be infinitely more knowledgeable than you too if doctors inflict pain to, to heal? If parents discipline their children to make them hopefully responsible adults one day, don't you think God could bring greater good out of the evil and the suffering in our world? Is it too much to ask you to have a little bit of humility? Don't you think that maybe, just maybe, God could have a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil and suffering in our world that you can't think of? 
Third, theodicy is what I would call the enigmatic nature of evil theodicy. I don't know if you'll read this in any books. This comes straight from me. But it should be in books, right? The enigmatic nature of evil theodicy. The nature of evil resides in its enigmatic character and irrational quality. Can we really explain evil? This is what people think they do and think they can do when they walk away from the faith. Look at all the evil. I understand all the evil in this world. What gives? I'm out. But can we really explain evil? You see, part of the nature and essence of evil resides in its enigmatic character and its irrational quality. You read Genesis chapter 3 after God has made a world beautiful and called it good, good, very good. And something surprises you, comes out of left field as you turn the page to Genesis chapter 3. It's in the Garden of Eden. It's in paradise. It's not explained. It's not rational. It's totally bewildering, totally inexplicable, and totally mystifying. What is it? The serpent is in paradise. The serpent is in the garden. The serpent is just there. And God doesn't give a huge backstory telling you like a big footnote. You know, this is like all the backstory of why the serpent's there. You know, this is why you can confine. He's just there, right? The pages, it's, it's surprising. It's bewildering. It's inexplicable. And this is the very nature of evil at its origins. The very nature of evil resides in its inexplicable reality. Randy Alcorn, he says it like this, if evil is irrational, how can its point of origin be rationally explained? Perhaps God does not offer any explanation because evil defies explanation. To understand evil would be to understand that evil is not ultimately evil. If you can get your head around why the serpent Satan is in the garden, you come tell me. It's inexplicable, the enigmatic character of theodicy and evil. Can you, can you buy it? Can you buy it? Number four, the theodicy. The existence of morality theodicy. What is the, all the, the ESPN guys and, and gals, they'll say something like, the best offense is a good no they don't say that they say the best defense is a good offense right the best defense is a good offense though that didn't bear true at the super bowl with my cheese but we'll let that go we'll let it go the question here is instead of being on our heels as christians oh i don't, I don't know what to say about this and that oh evil you press the offense against the skeptic and the big idea is where do you think morality and moral judgments come from. The skeptic will often say, if God exists, then he has failed to do the right thing. God has violated a moral standard when children die of cancer. That's not right. And God made the world. And so this skeptic is getting at something. Getting at the idea that it is God who has violated our moral standards. Yet a moral feeling means that I feel, even the skeptic feels, that some behavior is right and some behavior is wrong. 
And so the Christian should ask the skeptic, if there is no God, then where do such strong moral instincts and strong moral feelings come from? Tell me, where do you get a standard by which your moral feelings are judged as true and others are judged as false? Tell me the standard. This was actually the argument that drove the great C.S. Lewis into the faith. He finally concluded that moral evil in the world was actually an argument for the existence of God, not an argument against the existence of God. C.S. Lewis once said this, in a word, unless we allow ultimate reality to be moral, we cannot morally condemn it. Randy Alcorn tells a story of a young woman in her 20s who began drifting away from the church. She had grown up in Kenya, daughter of missionary parents who by the time she was 18, she had seen enough of the suffering, especially to children and, and women there in East Africa. And so when she was, you know, detached from the church, some young man in his 20s said to her one day, I think morals are totally subjective Therefore, God is unnecessary. And she found herself thinking things that eventually brought her back into the faith. She found herself thinking, but if morals are totally subjective, then you cannot say that Hitler was wrong. You can't say there's anything unjust about just letting babies starve to death. And you can't condemn evil. How tenable is that? And she says this, to talk about justice, you have to talk about objective morality. And to talk about objective morality, you have to talk about God. And so to the skeptic, you will also say, where do you think morality and moral judgments come from if not from God and his law and the way he designed the world? Made us image bearers of a moral God. Fifth, theodicy is what I would call the limits of evil theodicy. The big idea here is things are not the way things were supposed to be and not the way things will be. You see, perhaps the best response to the question, why did God make a world where evil exists, is that he didn't. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God created the world good and humans chose to sin. And so from its very outset, God did not create a world in this way. And on the other side, right? On the other side, God has also imposed a limit on evil, right? Evil will be judged. Tears will be wiped away. Suffering one day will be no more. And so God will impose a limit to human suffering and evil, both from its origins and from its telos, the outcome, where our world is going. One day there will be no more sin and there will be no more evil. God is in control. Limits of evil one day will come to an end. Finally, perhaps most robustly, perhaps this is the argument that we use not only to defend Christianity, but also to witness to our friends. 
the theodicy of the cross. Jesus suffered evil so that we might have life. The greatest solution to the problem of evil resides in the beauty and the power and the wisdom of the cross. Where God himself takes on the burden of our suffering and the evil in our world. There's a great story of Howard Hendricks, New Testament scholar. On a trip he had to India, he had a chance to visit a leprosy center. Right as he arrived, he noticed that the, the leprosy patients were all gathering in this small chapel to have a service of praise and worship. One of the women, he says, with leprosy, slowly hobbles her way to the platform. And Howard Hendricks says that though she was blind from leprosy, though she was badly disfigured, he says that she was the most beautiful woman that he'd ever seen. She comes to the pulpit and raises both hands to heaven. She says this, I want to praise God that I'm a leper because it was through my leprosy that I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I would rather be a leper who knows Christ than be completely whole and a stranger to His grace. That is the ultimate theodicy that shows forth the beauty and the goodness and the power of the cross to meet us in the very depth of our sin, to meet us in the very depth of our suffering, and to overcome the evil in our world. Things are not fair, we want to cry. God says, I have done something for it on your behalf, the cross of my Son, Jesus Christ. May you be equipped today in your own doubts, the doubts of your friends and colleagues and neighbors, to live out the hope that is within you. Let's pray.